Please keep your Bibles open to Ezra 3, 7 through 13, because we will follow along in there and walk through. Uh, we, the, the late Warren Wiersbe, who was a friend of our congregation, commenting on this passage says something that I think is uh, remarkable and important for us to remember. He says, every local church is but one generation short of extinction. And as we look at Ezra 3, I want us to keep that sort of thing in mind, and I want to look at then and bring it to now as we look at this. And so if we look at then, and we look at Ezra, and we put ourselves back in, in the position of what's happening in this, what we heard in the scripture reading, you have the people of Judah, who would have been the southern part of what used to be a united monarchy of Israel, but now it's Israel and Judah. They had been in danger and had been exiled because of their rank disobedience generation upon generation. They had found themselves in exile in Babylon. Now it's Persia. And now they've been given a second chance to come back. Some people take that opportunity and some don't. And already in the book of Ezra, we can begin to see some, of, uh, some truths about God. As we've looked, now we're in chapter 3, the second part of it. We can see the truths that God always preserves a remnant. God had covenanted a two-way promise with his people, Israel, and he wasn't going to give up on them in that promise. Even in their unfaithfulness, God would allow them to be disciplined and even many to fall away, but not everybody. God always preserved a remnant that would remain faithful and that he could work with to fulfill that covenant. Which leads us to another thing, that God is always faithful to his promises. And we've kind of seen that in the book of Ezra. That if God says X is going to equal Y and there's going to be a consequence or a benefit, God's faithful either way. If we decide to go in the direction of the, of the consequence of sin, God's not going to relent on that. God will give mercy, but eventually if we don't give in to God's way, we will face the consequences. We can also see then that God is merciful. And mercy typically is given when it's not deserved. So that's typically when God's giving it. God is merciful. And with that, we can kind of move towards where we're at in the text today. Uh, we could ask the question of Judah, were they bordering on extinction or what kind of problems were there for them? Of course, God was never going to get rid of Judah completely. God always preserves a remnant. But we can see that when they were in danger, they were disciplined, and God's now given them a second chance. That's a big deal. We can also see that they paid a significant price, because not only were they moved about 800 miles away, and then what's left after 70 years is kind of slowly trickling back to the land of promise, but they've lost a lot of goods and a lot of people and a lot of all kinds of things in that process. And when they're starting over, they're starting with less than they, they had to begin with. One evidence from the text that I just think is worth pointing out is if you go to Ezra 3, chapter 3, verse 8, and it's the last sentence. It's a long verse. So if you almost, almost verse 9, it says, when they returned back, they appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord, which wouldn't stand out to us except for the uh, fact that in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, it points out, Leviticus, excuse me, it points out that Levites were supposed to be either 25 or 30 not 20. They have a scarcity on their hands. 
They've paid a significant price in this exile, and they had to lower the age just to be faithful in this return, in this second chance. But they utilized what God had given them in order to make that happen. And so the point that we could take from this point on through the book of Ezra, we'll see other sub-points, but I think this is important to recognize, is never squander a second chance from God. I think that stands out from this point on in the text. Never squander a second chance from God. They're obviously trying to do what they can to fulfill that. They're back in the land. Okay, priests 20, that's fine. Levites 20 years old. We can do this. They're not going to lose out on this. They're not going to squander it. They've learned their lesson. So if we go to verse 10 and 11, let's start there. Chapter 3. It says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord... The priests in their vestment and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of God, of the Lord, was laid. Here you have the song of second chances. He is good. Anybody else in the house experiencing that? He is good. His love endures forever. If we can kind of peek behind that and see what's the attitude of a people singing the song of second chance, I want to point out a couple things that I can see here. These are kind of quick points and we'll, we'll do a little more with with what this means for us towards the end. The people celebrated God's redemption. I mean, that's what they're celebrating. They're celebrating the fact that that they had paid the price, but then God had said, okay, now it's done, now come back to the land. And they're celebrating that return. The second thing that we can see is that no one blamed God for their consequences of their own sin. It was their fault that they were in exile. It was God's mercy that brought them back. It wasn't God's fault that they were in exile. God is good, they're proclaiming. And we can see that throughout Scripture. Uh, Psalm 145.9 came to mind this week. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. God is good. And they can see that. And so they're celebrating that. The third thing I think we can see that sits behind this, the attitude of a song of second chances, is that the praise of the redeemed is genuine and loud do you see that in the text they mean it and they sing it out and they make noise and the fourth thing i would say about what what stands behind this is that they praised god because of god's character he is good but they're also praising god for his past work and especially his future promise And if you look, you can see that because when do they start praising God? They're coming to build the temple. Is the temple finished yet? No. They just laid the foundation. And now they're yelling out for joy. He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And now they're making a loud noise. They just laid the foundation. They can see what God is going to do. And they're celebrating that, not simply what God did and God's character. We take it from then to now, just simply at this point, we could ask this question. Has God laid a foundation in your life that makes you say, yes, Lord, he is good? 
Have you counted it up? Has God laid a foundation for us as his people that makes us say, yes, Lord, he is good. What will God do? It's a good question that it brings us to right there. But let's go on to verses 12 and 13. It says here, but many, so they're cheering, they're praising. The foundation's been laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. The context here is that they're remembering the old temple, obviously. The old temple, Solomon's temple, had been there for hundreds of years, had been completely destroyed when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. It was in ruins. And there were some that had lived through, they had been taken into exile, they'd seen the temple destroyed, they'd lived through the whole thing. You can see this kind of thing playing out in the book of Daniel, where Daniel... Uh, was in exile, and even in his old years, even in his old years, he was, he's being asked for advice. Seventy years of exile, there were obviously a few people that had seen it all, and they're weeping. And I know uh, the feeling of that, I don't know firsthand perhaps, but I remember my grandfather who was a covenant pastor for his whole career, one of his last churches that he served as an interim pastor burned down. And I remember him saying that the, the feeling of watching that was just awful to watch a church burn. And they're weeping because of that kind of a feeling. They remember the grandeur of Solomon's temple. And this isn't it. And so if we look at why are they weeping, that's the easy answer, I think. There's two answers. That's the easy answer. They're weeping because they remember the splendor of the original temple, and now they're not seeing that anymore. They wouldn't have missed the fact that the text points us out that they were building the temple, beginning beginning the foundation of the temple in the second month of the year, which is also when they would have begun Solomon's temple. They knew that. They wouldn't have missed that. That's why it's pointed out for us. There's some kind of mimicking of of what was and what is. And this temple just does not compare. But like I say, I think that's the easy answer for why there's such weeping. I think there's a deeper and more introspective answer that's there in the text. They don't just remember the grandeur of Solomon's temple. They remember their unfaithfulness in spite of the fact that God had given them everything they needed to succeed with that temple. That's why they went into exile. And some of these priests and some of these old, older people who would have returned after 70 years in their old age that can see this, they might have been completely faithful, but they knew that as a people they weren't. And they suffered the consequences for that. And so when they're singing this song, He is good, His love for Israel endures forever, they're also remembering He is good, but we weren't even close to matching that. Not even a little bit were we close to being good like God. 
Who cares if we had the most beautiful temple around that was the pinnacle of the whole city? Who cares if we had the altar of atonement if we were so disobedient? If we turned away, if we were rotten to the core, it's just a facade. They're remembering all of that as well. And as they're putting back the pieces of the foundation, as we pointed out last week, they had to clear the rubble of their past failure first. That's the place that they're standing on. They had to come to grips with the fact that things didn't go right when God gave them everything. And now they have a second chance. What had they done wrong to create that rubble? To go into exile? They had made God a second thought, not their first love. God had been their third, fourth, fifth, or sixth priority, one among many important things that they had. That's what they had done. They had put their faith and hope in other gods or in more money or in the relationships they had or whatever it is. We do the same exact things, right? We put all of our hope sometimes in the worldly things around us and the worldly successes around us. And they're asking the question we need to ask, to what end? To what end did I earn it or play it or visit it or experience it? They all might be good things, some of these things, but to what end? If God's a second thought, not our first love. They're also recognizing that their faith had been about doing right, not being right with God. We saw that clearly last week as well, that they, they were at the point where they couldn't just do the motions. They're, they had to be heartfelt because they only had an altar at this point. They were serious about this. They traveled all the way back to live this out. They meant this. Their faith had been about doing right, not being right. And you can see an example of what that looks like if you read something like Isaiah 58, where the people are fighting and bickering and trying to fast better than everybody else and do the right things to get accolades from God and from others, but they're not serious about their relationship with God. They just want to get something for it. And so it was with what they were doing before. God had given them everything, and yet they were unfaithful. They just wanted what they wanted. It's no different than when a church does ministries but forgets the mission. It's no different than when we, we go about life and we've, we are doing our own priorities and have forgotten our first love. And we just want what we want from God when we want it and then God can be shelved up until that point. When our first love is lost, our new love becomes me and us, not God. And that's what they faced. That's what got them in trouble. Let me point out, if we bring this to now, talking about second chances. We live in a cultural moment where you can read the articles and look at the statistics and you can see the decline and fall of cultural Christianity all around us. I remember when we, uh, we've lived in Canada a couple times, Stephanie and I have, and the last time, particularly uh, about a decade ago, it was, it was clearly an environment where, if you want to understand what this looks like to lose cultural Christianity, um, you have to explain why you go to church or why you, don't go, why you do go to church rather than why you don't go to church. And we're moving in that direction quite quickly in our country. Why would you go to church? Why would you spend the time there? Right? You can just have your own religion. You can just do your own thing. Those kinds of things. What we see over time as, as people start to not feel like they need to be a part of 
the church for cultural reasons or whatever other reasons people had, we'll start to see churches close and merge more, of course, on the surface. We'll start to see a culture that's more antagonistic towards Jesus and his followers. Some people already experienced that in profound ways. We'll start to see that people who go to church just out of convenience of being cultural, but haven't, they do it, but they don't, aren't right with God, they don't believe it really, they won't give anymore. Disciples will need to step up, true disciples of Jesus Christ. They'll stop attending, and true disciples will be the ones who have to support the church that exists. And we'll see that even within the church, we'll have a lot more internal strife. Gossip, rumors, infighting. And if, if ever you're involved in gossip and rumors, let's remember those are sinful. Let's not be those people. But what's remarkable about this moment, rather than to be depressed, is to recognize that we have a second chance. We have a second chance to speak into a culture and to stand on the rubble of what was and speak the truth to a culture that doesn't have any idea of what it actually is. To a culture that thinks they know what Christianity is, but if you press with a few questions, you find out they have no idea what the story is and what an opportunity that gives us to present the good news of Jesus Christ to a culture that doesn't know but needs it. And we can present true Christianity, but that requires that we look out, not in, and continue to look out and not in to lay the foundation of what's next. So to complete the quote from Wearsby that has something to do with us uh, and looking uh, out and to future, he says this, Every local church is but one generation short of extinction. If the older believers don't challenge and equip the younger Christians and set a godly example before them, the future of the congregation is in jeopardy. The church is a family, and as a family grows and matures, some things have to fall away and other things take their place. This happens in our home, and it must happen in the house of God. Never squander a second chance from God. What do we do with this, then? If we're looking at the text, bring it to now, both corporately and individually, the first thing is we want to be grateful for what God has given us. Overlooking God's mercy, that's dangerous living. We want to be grateful for what God has given us. I see a spiritual director about every five or six weeks uh, to help me understand what, how God might be speaking that I wouldn't have normally uh, noticed or heard. It's very beneficial, and he reminds me regularly, be grateful. Be thankful. And I want to point out that uh, I can see, while it's not a cure-all to all that ails us in society, being grateful does an awful lot more than we want to give it credit for. Uh, having worked with, uh, I don't work with youth as my normal part of my job, but I do with confirmation students and outside of the church context. I've been working with middle schoolers a little bit this past season. Um, and I can tell you that just in general, high school, middle school, and a little below, uh, there is such tremendous anxiety and fear. But yet they have everything, stuff-wise. But the fear and, and even the suicide rate is going down in age. 
Can I just point out that while it wouldn't cure everything, being grateful for what we have does a lot more than we realize in those circumstances. It does a lot more for us than we realize when anxiety and when those things hit us, when we start to get depressed, when we start to turn away from God's goodness, being grateful turns us back towards it. Second thing I would say is if you have experienced God's mercy through Jesus Christ, what do they model for us in Ezra? Sing it out and be loud. Let it out. Don't be timid about it. If you're the redeemed, we ought to be praising God as the redeemed. Louder and better. Third thing I would point out if we bring it from now to then is to never blame God for the consequences of your own pride. We all succumb at different times to sin in all of its different ways. It's not God's fault. God's the redeemer, not the causer of sin. And lastly, I'd say this to tie it up. It's important for us, especially corporately, to enjoy what God has done. But we really need to lean into and emphasize what God will do. Why do I say that? Because the entire thrust of Scripture always points out to what God will do is better than what God has done, even though what God did was good. That's why we ate dessert first and heard revelation. No sun needed. The glory of God will light the place. The new heavens and the new earth when God redeems everything. That's going to be better than now. Do we believe it? Do we believe that others need it? And so we need to emphasize what God will do and lay the foundation and celebrate that for what God will do amongst us. And so I would suggest one of the outworkings of this is if you're not inviting, teaching, training, encouraging, mentoring, or in some way helping somebody of another generation or an outsider come closer to Jesus, look deeper for those opportunities. They're there. The harvest is plentiful. I'll give you a few examples because it's not as hard as we think sometimes. Uh, Thanks to the encouragement of my wife, thanks to the printed Easter uh, invitations that we had, and thanks to a great sermon series uh, created by our associate pastor, Jody, on how to neighbor this year. Our family went around prior to Easter, and we delivered those Easter mailers with a tray of cookies to the neighbors we didn't know as well. We know a bunch of them. We didn't know some of them. We said, okay, let's go around and do this. Let's invite them to Easter if they don't have a church. It was super easy. It was more fun with family, too, and with friends. We had a great time. Another way that you can encourage or invite that's really very easy. I've made it my task uh, when, I, when, it's, when, it's, when it makes sense, when I can get it done, because I don't always get to talk to guests after the service, but if I can, I make it my job to invite them back. And you know, you can do the same thing. It could be all of our jobs to invite them back. Do you know how far that goes? Not just to assume, but to invite Huge deal. Any, any of us can do that and engage and invite them back. I will point out if you're, if you're one who asked, well, have you seen so-and-so in a while? We have somebody that's connected with our congregation that we haven't seen in a while. You can invite them too. It goes a long way when, when you call them versus me. And I would say this, another example. If you have a ministry role in the church, big or small, 
Have a shadow or an intern always help you with something. Invite somebody to help join in the ministry of the church. Maybe they're even a neighbor who's not connected. Maybe there's somebody who's, who we don't really know yet. But you say, you know what? I've got to cut some gingerbread uh, cutouts for Sunday school. Neighbor, will you help me do that? Invite somebody in. Bring them a little bit closer. We all have this capability to, to lay the foundation and trust what God will do with the things around us that he's given us to invest in. Let's go ahead and let's pray together before we sing. Lord, help us be your thankful people. Help us be people who are grateful for the many things that you've done, but who are looking forward to what you will do. Help us be your people who recognize that we are redeemed only by the power of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us recognize that we can praise you with everything that we have, and we should, with great volume and velocity, so that people know that we are the redeemed, and they can be too. Lord, help us accept the consequences for where we failed, both individually and as your people, and help us seek forgiveness quickly that we would not only learn what we did and turn from it, but we'd be back in your grace again because of the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, washing over us. And indeed, Lord, right now we stop and we pray and hold out any unforgiven sin that we have before you. Lord, forgive us. Lord, forgive us for where we've missed, where the foundation is already laid, and you've given us the tools, and your temple is ready to go, but we have ignored the reality. Lord, help us see those moments and take advantage of what you've given us for your glory, for your kingdom. This we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.